Hi everyone, welcome back for another podcast, another episode of EGOs and the MRCI. Today I have some really special guests. They are actually researchers that are a part of a carbon capture and storage project at the University of Adelaide Australian School of Petroleum and Energy Resources. So today we have with us uh, Dr. John Caldy, Dr. Catherine Amos, Dr. Mark Bunch, and Dr. Eureka Schott. It's really great to see you all here today. Thank you so much for being here. So to start, John Caldy, could you please give our audience an introduction about yourself? So perhaps something about your current title, your career background, maybe some career goals that you have and or passions? Sure, Rochelle. So my current title, I'm retired, so I'm an emeritus professor at the University of Adelaide. I also am the distinguished scientist for the uh, CO2CRC. I'm also the South Australia State Chair for Carbon Capture and Storage, and I've recently taken up the role of the Petroleum Exploration of South Australia uh, and Northern Territories Vice President. I spent 20 years or so in the petroleum industry working with companies like Shell, Arco, and Bico um, all around the world. Um, I came to Australia in 1998 to take up the directorship of the National Centre for Petroleum Geology and Geophysics, which then merged with the School of Petroleum Engineering to form the Australian School of Petroleum, which then evolved to the Australian School of Petroleum and Energy Resources, which we are now. So I was the director of NCPDG, inaugural head of ASP, and at the same time, I had various roles within the CO2 CRC. Mm-hmm. My goals, well, at this stage of my career, what are my goals? Well, basically to give back, mm-hmm. give back to industry, give back to academia. I'm trying to share lessons I've learned and mistakes I've made so the rest of you lot won't be doing the same thing. And I'll do that through uh, academia, university here at Adelaide, professional societies. Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate your time and it's an honor to have you here today. So moving on uh, to Catherine, could you please share with us your current title, your background, uh, any career goals and passions that you have? Hi, thanks, Rochelle. Uh, So uh, I'm a sedimentary geologist by background um, and I am currently the head of school for the Australian School of Petroleum and Energy Resources at the University of Adelaide. And it's a real honour to be to be in this position and working with a, a, such a great team of colleagues. I think, um, look, in terms of passions, they're probably similar to most people who, who study geology and geoscience. You know, I'm fascinated in understanding how, how the earth works, and particularly for, for my research, I'm interested in understanding more about landscape evolution, controls on on the shape of our modern landscapes and how we can use that to interpret landscapes of the ancient past down in in the subsurface. Um, And particularly how we can then apply that knowledge in a practical way. So um, the conversation we're having now about CO2 storage is a really nice example that we can understand 
all sorts of tiny details about the rocks beneath our feet um, and the environmental processes that shaped them to help us better understand how we can do things like permanently store CO2 in the subsurface. Um, I, I, other passions, I guess, are teaching, and that's probably not too unusual for an academic, but I do really feel very fortunate to be able to, um, to teach amazing students, um, to work with them, and to, to be really to be working with colleagues and with industry on, on shaping the training that we provide so that they're going to be contributing, you know, really um, usefully to solving problems now and into the future. Awesome. Thank you so much, Catherine, for that. And thank you for being here today. <clears throat> Could you please give our audience an introduction about yourself? So something perhaps about your current title, your career background, current career goals and passions? Sure. So thanks for having me on, Rochelle. It's great to be in this company. Um, my name is Dr. Mark Bunch. I'm a senior lecturer in energy geoscience at the Australian School of Petroleum and Energy Resources. So uh, my, in terms of my career background, um, I specialize in terms of my research in this role in uh, wireline log data interpretation and advanced interpretation of seismic data. And so I, I'm involved in teaching those topics and also uh, research related to those. But prior to, to this role, I had seven years with the CO2 CRC. So that was with uh, John's group um, from 2008. And uh, that was working in a, uh, as John's mentioned, a pan-Australian and actually international organisation concerned with uh, solving the, the complete value chain problem of uh, CO2 storage. Um, and over the course of the time of that, that um, my time with that organisation, uh, the word utilisation became part of the lexicon, which is what we're talking about today. So um, uh, my role within that organisation was to um, work with exactly the same types of data that I now um, uh, focus on in my career. And it was primarily for the purpose of creating so-called geological static models, so numerical representations of uh, geology in the subsurface that can then be used for simulating the way fluids move through those rocks. And uh, in terms of my, my current career goals, I'm, I can remember uh, when I joined that organization um, back in 2008, thinking that I was, uh, it was a very exciting time because it was um, Australia at the time, I would say was in, in number one or number two, probably number two to the United States in terms of being at the cutting edge of CO2 uh, capture and storage technologies. And the implementation was very much on the horizon here as well about that and I would say that that's my passion to make contributions to help make that a reality over the next few decades. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, Mark. That was really inspiring. And you, Eureka, could you please give our audience an introduction about yourself? So your current title, your career background, and then any current goals or passions that you have. Thanks for Russia inviting me along. I'm also very pleased to be able to contribute to your podcast this week. So yes, my name is Ulrike Schacht. I'm currently the Chevron Senior Research Leader in Carbon Storage Science here at Austrian School of Petroleum and Energy Resources. Um, by background, I'm a geoscientist, but my focus has always been on geochemistry. So undergrad, initially postgrad, I focused on the geochemistry applied geochemistry of 
mostly related to mining and the formation of ore deposits. From there on, I then uh, was able to successfully apply back then for a postdoc position here at the University of Adelaide. And that position focused on geochemistry and biogenetic processes related to geological storage of carbon dioxide. Um, pretty much since then, which was now 15 years ago, uh, my research has focused on carbon capture and storage, not capture of storage. Mm -hmm. um, and um, mainly geochemical processes that are associated with the process of storing CO2 in the south surface. Um, yeah, and I think it's what I'm still most excited about, obviously, this research area is getting a lot of momentum and attention at the moment um, because it is widely recognized that energy sector needs to transition and a key component of this transition is going to be the well-established carbon capture and storage mm -hmm. industry and i'm excited that i will be able to contribute to this john you have been working in ccus for quite some time now can you please walk our audience through major milestones within the ccus field during your career and could you tell us maybe some of your best research breakthroughs and then maybe also some difficult or challenging moments that you experienced along the way? Sure, Rochelle. Look, I'm going to go through the major breakthroughs and the other elements. I'm going to try to do this in a chronological order. I've been in the game for a very long time, so I don't want to touch on everything, but I want to hit the main highlights of where CCS has come from. Sure. So let's start 1991. That's when the IEAGHG, the International Energy Agency, the Greenhouse Gas R&D program was launched. So that was really the kickoff for doing any kind of research on CCS. Jump ahead to 1996. The Sleipner CO2 storage project in the Norwegian North Sea, uh, Statoil, now Equinor, uh -huh. um, was putting a CO2 into the subsurface. Why were they doing it? Well, basically, Norway had a carbon tax. This was a very good carbon tax avoidance mechanism. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, they put about a million tons per annum. So cumulatively, that's about 26 million tons to date. And some of the great learnings we got out of that project and are still getting is 4D seismic, mm -hmm. repeat, uh, 3D seismic. Go now to 1999, uh, Australia, the Australian Petroleum Cooperative Research Centre launches the GeoDisc uh, program. Uh, the GeoDisc program conducted Australia's first regional and basin-wide screening for potential storage sites, mm -hmm. and also found, as part of the site selection process, a storage demonstration project in Victoria, later to be called the Otway Project. Go to 2003, or stay in 2003, come back to Australia, now the CO2CRC is launched, mm -hmm. a cooperative research center for greenhouse gas technologies. Um, so these, that is a big moment for us here. 2004, a number of different demonstration projects 
a small one called the Frio Demonstration Project in Texas accounted for 1,600 tons injected into the Cretaceous Frio sandstone. It's run by the Bureau of Economic Geology at University of Texas, mm-hmm. a lady called Sue Havorker, a real leader in this field, headed that up. Some of the learnings we got from there, well, was the first place where we used YouTubes and tracers for monitoring, and the first time that the tough two dynamic modeling was applied to um, uh, monitoring at CCS. Again, in 2004, we had Insala, now it's in Algeria, where uh, Sonatrek AP um, injected 3.8 million tons into a depleted gas reservoir. A project was suspended, again, very, very important. It is suspended in 2011 due to geomechanical concerns all about seal integrity. So they stopped the project because they realized that they were uh, fracturing the seal with the increase in pressure from injection. Sure. 2008, and here's a big one for us here, Mark alluded to it. That's when the CO2-CRC Artway project began. It's the first CCS project in Australia, for that matter, in the Southern Hemisphere. we injected 65,000 tons into a Cretaceous sand, the Wari formation, and um, uh, basically launched basically our uh, major project for the CO2 CRC. 2011 now, back to the US, Decatur, Illinois, um, first project to source CO2 from an ethanol plant, the Archer Daniel Midland ethanol plant injected about a million tons a year into the Cambrian sandstone reservoir called the Mount Messenger Formation. 2013, this is where our first major setback occurs. Everything was cruising along nicely. Mm -hmm. In 2013, Tony Abbott wins the government. One of Tony Abbott's main platforms acts the tax. In other words, the carbon tax was abolished industry government funding for ccs now dried up and it took a long time to restart that 2015 shell's quest project in alberta and this is the first project that stored co2 uh derived from a heavy oil upgrader and about 1.2 million tons per year again into a cambrian sandstone those cambrian sandstones are really really prolific reservoirs Mm-hmm. 2018 now, coming back to Australia, Gorgon, the Gorgon LNG project, along with CCS project, the government mandated that in order for Chevron, Shell, and Exxon to be able to run a, a multi-train uh, LNG project uh, on Barrow Island, which is a class one nature reserve, they had to cease and desist from emitting CO2 into the atmosphere and put it into the subsurface. Some of the great learnings we got from that one, it is the first CCS project that utilized pressure management, in other words, water production to leave pressure sinks for the injection of CO2. So at the moment, they're injecting 
somewhere between three and four million tons a year into the Jurassic Dupuy Formation, which is the largest CCS project in the world. Mm-hmm. Again, in 2018, this is another big one, in the U.S., where you guys are, 45Q tax incentive was introduced. So all of a sudden, the U.S. DOE was giving 50 bucks per ton for CCS projects and 35 bucks U.S. per ton for CCUS, predominantly EOR. So now you're getting a tax rebate for doing these projects. Mm-hmm. Coming up close to now, 2019, the Northern Lights Project, Norway. It's a joint venture between Equinor, Shell, and Total. And this is the world's first open source CO2 transport and storage infrastructure hub with the aim of actually delivering carbon stores that paid for service to CO2 emitters in the region. 2021, last year, the Australian government and many other governments around the world are now pushing for net zero by 2050. And one of the main mechanisms that uh, are seen as a a, a way to get there is CCS. Example here in Australia, Santos's Moomba CCS project was approved for what, what are called Australian Carbon Credit Units, ACCUs, basically a tax netback. Uh, storage is planned for, once that was given approval, storage is planned for 1.7 million tons per year, perhaps more. What's in the future? Well, 2022, hopefully the Carbon Net Project, a CCS hub in offshore Gippsland Basin, Victoria, with plans to store 125 million tons of carbon emitted from industry, industrial sources at a rate of about 5 million tons a year with injection into a uh, depleted gas field called the Pelican. So watch this space Mm -hmm. and better things and more things to come. Anyway, so that's a little potted history. I hope it uh, covered everything here. Yeah, that was wonderful. Um, That's amazing. I really enjoyed uh, you sharing that. Thank you for your time and the research that you did and just sharing your life experience with us. That's amazing. Mark, could you please share with our audience the current status of CCUS in Australia? And then could you just tell us more about your current research, perhaps um, some geological challenges in CCS that you've discovered, and maybe something uh, that you consider to be a significant breakthrough in your CCUS research? Yeah, sure, Rochelle. So I can remember, you know, when I began with uh, CO2 CRC um, and the the approach that we took, it was built on the the ideas around um, defining uh, petroleum system elements, characterizing reservoirs and sealing systems uh, that are done uh, in the petroleum space. So that was really the launch point and and the paradigm began there, Mm -hmm. but it it quite quickly broadened out um, because there was a realization that with CO2, we're dealing with something different in many respects. Uh, one of the key ones is obviously we're trying to put a fluid into the ground. We're not trying to take a fluid out of the ground. Um, 
and we want to keep it down there permanently as well. So um, John's, uh, you know, a large part of John's research over his career has been concerned with um, defining uh, seal capacity. So the, the ability of, or the potential for a, a sealing or impermeable rock to actually withhold buoyant fluids down in the subsurface. And with petroleum, uh, that was a, a well-practiced science by that stage. And it's relatively straightforward uh, with some assumptions to convert a lot of that early work into defining the way that those same rocks can withhold other buoyant fluids, for example, CO2 or any other fluid that might be buoyant and might be trying to wait, make its way up the stratigraphy. So it begins there, but a key distinction with CO2 is that it is a somewhat reactive fluid when it goes into the, the subsurface. Mm -hmm. So it, it starts to naturally dissociate through re reversible reactions when in contact with the, the pore water. And that means that it starts to create aqueous species that then want to interact with the rocks, uh, the surfaces, uh, I guess that you could call it the walls of the pores and the pore spaces. Uh, the, the rock surfaces that it's in contact with. And that's actually something that we realise pretty quickly you want to promote within the reservoir space. So the rock that you're trying to keep the CO2 stored in, you want it to stay in there. But what you also want it to do is transition in terms of its state over time. So to begin with, you keep it in the pore space as a free fluid. But progressively over time, and we're talking about uh, hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands and then onwards obviously to millions of years because obviously the objective is to keep it down there forever mm -hmm. um, it starts to transition more and more of it would start to dissolve or dissociate in pore water and that's one way of keeping it down there permanently because it actually makes the water that starts to absorb or take on some of the co2 the components of the co2 it comes heavier and it starts to sink down the column and go to the bottom of the reservoir and then eventually given more time, these chemical reactions will start to fix those ingredients as part of the rock. So you start to get a mineralization of carbonate minerals within the pore space against the pore walls. And that's also something you want to promote, but that takes a very, very long time. And the fastest way of doing that under natural conditions that we know is actually uh, the more recent um, unconventional style of uh, CO2 storage that goes on in uh, igneous rocks. So these are rocks that aren't sedimentary there. They're the type of rocks that come out of volcanoes. And this is the, the type of research that's been investigated in particular in Iceland, where they found that they can fix uh, CO2 that's injected into those rocks very quickly into a mineralized form, uh, because those rocks are very, they're very chemically fresh, they're chemically mm -hmm. unstable at the surface of the earth. And they want to react and interact with fluids um, rapidly. Mm -hmm. So it became obvious that um, you want to be able to promote that transition from into a sort of aqueous dissolved state and then into a mineralized state as much as possible in the, the sedimentary reservoir systems that we're talking about mostly here. However, there is also the possibility that you have interactions with the ceiling rock which sits above, which changes the, the state of that rock. So we get some mineral species formed. It might also result in um, dehydration reactions or changes in volume. So this is absolutely cutting edge research at the moment. We're talking about things that occur over uh, tens, maybe hundreds, thousands of years and beyond, obviously, into um, the geological future. So it's very hard to simulate that 
Mm-hmm. Um, even to do it in batch experiments in the laboratory, we've had a few decades to start playing around with this, I suppose, at the very, um, if, you, if you take it at the very most optimistic level, and it's still not enough time. So we do rely on computer simulation as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, all modeling is uh, limited and constrained usually by, um, well, it used to be hardware, that's becoming less and less of an issue now. Um, but what becomes a bigger issue is the assumptions that you have to make in terms of trying to simplify the problem. And um, it turns out that um, simulating uh, inorganic chemical reactions is a very complicated thing to do, especially when what you're doing is reacting with uh, a rock that is made up of many different minerals, really. We, we like to think of our sedimentary reservoir systems as being just uh, maybe a sandstone or a limestone. But it, it, those rocks exist on a continuum all the way to something that basically is an impermeable, more sealing rock type. And um, through that transition in the, the continuum, uh, there are all sorts of different uh, mineral species that could exist as part of that rock. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a very complicated process to try and figure out exactly the chain of reactions that will happen with CO2 over different time scales. Mm-hmm. But it is, that's, I would describe that as the cutting edge, really, is to start broadening the paradigm and the way that we think about these systems in sedimentary basins where we want to store CO2. And we start to, to look at them in a different way. We don't just look at them now as probably we did more so with petroleum as uh, a, a tight and fast container that holds petroleum over geological periods of time until we pop along stick a straw in the ground and start st- sucking it out. Mm-hmm. This is a very different scenario where we're no longer talking about a static system, but, but potentially over geological time periods, we're talking about a dynamic geological system where that CO2 is uh, interacting with the system all the time and maybe subtly changing um, the way that it behaves mm-hmm. over, over a period of time. Thank you so much, so much, Mark, for that. That was... That was awesome. Also, Eureka, could you please share with our audience the current status of CCUS or even CCS, whatever you feel more comfortable speaking of here in Australia? So for example, is it um, trending or is it really popular? Are there a lot of companies and research institutes working on it? So obviously, um... CCS research has been around in Australia for quite some time. Um, initially, researchers in Australia were among the first group of scientists to look in, into this as a solid contribution to the energy transition these days. And obviously, as a result of that, um, active CCS projects took place very early on here in Australia. So Mark has already mentioned the demonstration on in the Otway Basin, which I think was the first of its kind in the Southern Hemisphere quite some time ago now. Uh, from there, we have come quite a long way. Obviously, Australia is about to be like a major milestone when it comes to CCS due to the Chevron project that is currently underway in Western Australia. Um, and once that becomes fully operational, it has the potential to be one of the largest CCS projects of its kind in the world, which, mm-hmm. well, researchers in my research area, it's an exciting um, 
thing happening to see. Obviously, large-scale CCS projects at this stage worldwide are limited, and we're all in our research area very much aware that we're still far away from far away away from meeting the need uh, in terms of number of projects. But it's good to see that over the last couple of years, quite a large number of CCS projects worldwide are in development, mm -hmm. and that's where we need to go if we wanted to meet our goals of cutting CO2 emissions by the, within the short timeframes that we have available. And um, I only learned uh, not too long ago that in Australia, actually another uh, large scale CO2 storage project was approved here in Australia. And that is the broad project um, that was uh, approved in August last year. Mm -hmm. um, that will be operated uh, 300 kilometers north of Darwin, so will be an offshore project. And I think the main one of the main industry partners involved in that will be Santos. Mm -hmm. So it's good to see that there is, yeah, lots of initiatives, um, which in parts are enabled through government support which is obviously also required if you wanted to establish a large-scale CCS industry. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so to allow this industry to become, or to cover that important part in the energy transition that it would need to in the years to come. Absolutely. Could you tell us a little bit more about your current research, so things that you're allowed to talk about with us? Um, are there any sort of geological challenges that you're currently working on? And then do you have any new sort of research breakthroughs that you've um, uncovered in the past few years? My research has always focused on the two storage and chemical processes associated with it in the storage reservoir. So initially I looked into geological CO2 accumulation as a form of natural analog studies for CO2 storage sites in order to learn the long-term impact CO2 would have on the storage reservoir, but in part also on the overlying seal, and in order to allow us to determine the time frames that would be associated uh, with CO2 storage, the chemical processes that would be triggered in the subsurface, the processes that would enable us uh, to securely store CO2 in the subsurface, um, but also those processes that might be non-beneficial uh, for the CO2 storage. Um, I think the one of the biggest takeaway from all this research over the years is that um, while there's a general sort of order of events that one might expect once the CO2 is happening, mm -hmm. uh, once the CO2 is stored in the subsurface, um, these processes and the timeframes around these processes are very site-specific. So I think one of the key messages is you need to be very diligent around uh, assessment, specific site assessment of your storage site. And that usually starts in a very regional sort of scale to determine proper storage sedimentary basin, and you mm -hmm. cut it down to the more site uh, scale, you investigate in the virtual reservoirs, but you need to really 
take it all the way through almost to the microscopic scale. Mm-hmm. You need to assess the mineralogical make of your storage reservoir as well as of your seal and in order to fully understand the chemical processes and then how these processes might be able to enable the trapping of the CO2, but also to understand the chemical processes that might be non-beneficiary for the mm-hmm. long-term storage. Mm-hmm. And then uh, obviously that will need to be assessed in terms of, in the end, identifying the best and safest storage site possible. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Could you tell us um, something about the importance of this research as a national priority for Australia? And then could you also share with us what you think the future of CCUS in Australia looks like for uh, us as geoscientists, for companies, and then also uh, maybe something that the average citizen should know? Sure thing. Thanks, Rochelle. Um, I think it's it's incredibly important you know as an academic working in a university engaged in in research and teaching our external engagement is is fundamentally important you know with the broader community with government and with industry um and and that's no different for for ccs than it is for for you know all other types of research that are undertaken um you know we can undertake blue skies research which is is pure research for the sake of growing knowledge and understanding. And then there's applied research. And of course, with CCS, um, a large area of our focus is the application of that expertise we have in the subsurface geology and engineering to energy systems and CO2 storage. Um, I won't repeat um, things that my colleagues have talked about, uh, but you know, there's been some great conversation in this podcast around um, the focus that we've had at the University of Adelaide on CCS research for you know, around 20 years now. Um, and, and we're not the only people who've been doing that. There's, you know, within the scientific community, um, then there's a lot of understanding and knowledge and history of that research and the practical application of that to geological storage of CO2. Um, but I think that that's not something the general public are really aware of. Um, you know, it's it's really only much more recently that, that CO2 storage in the subsurface has has been on the on the public radar mm-hmm. and is something that is much more frequently talked about. Um, so I do think that's a, a challenge that we have as scientists um, and, and for companies as practitioners uh, to communicate some of that knowledge that we have um, better to a, to a broader audience. Um, you know, we know, and, and, and I s- certainly John spoke earlier about the, um, the feasibility. You know, we know that large-scale injection for permanent storage of CO2 is feasible. It's been demonstrated in projects around the world. Um, you know, I think for companies, the challenges are um, perhaps more engineering-focused, um, you know, upscaling that sequestration of CO2 on a much larger scale than has been done previously. Now, whether that's through bigger projects or more projects, you know, either which way there are infrastructure um, challenges that will need to be resolved, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure you'll have um, podcast interviews with people who are much more qualified to speak to that topic than, than I am. Um, I think for the general public, 
you know, that we have to talk about the bigger picture. For CO2 storage, it is much more than just the science. Um, and, and I guess as scientists, we're not used to talking about, about the bigger picture so much. Um, but, you know, confidence in the science is a really important aspect. But the bigger picture, it overlaps with, uh, with policy development, with company activity, and, you know, really critically how CCS fits into the bigger picture of the energy transition. You know, people are asking whether CCS is a distraction mm -hmm. from investing in other cleaner energy technologies, or is it a genuine part of the transition process? And that, you know, really, this is where government policy comes mm -hmm. in um, and, and is incredibly important. Uh, what, what I keep coming back to is the International Energy Agency's Net Zero by 2050 report that was published last year. Um, and it identifies, you know, CCS is a, a major tool that that we are going to need to enable um, achievement of net zero by 2050. Their modeling shows that a huge increase in CCS is going to be needed to mitigate emissions. And that's with a modeled reduction of fossil fuel consumption for energy by 80%. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even with a really huge reduction in fossil fuel consumption, we are going to need uh, you know, the, the kind of engineering solutions and, and the mitigation of emissions and CO2 storage in the subsurface right now looks like one of the, you know, lowest hanging fruits for, for a way to achieve that. Um, so I think as a society, you know, we need to be investing in a whole range of different solutions and different aspects of the energy transition. But as a, as a geologist, um, then I am, you know, certain that right now investing efforts into co2 storage is is an incredibly useful um, and beneficial thing to be doing mm -hmm. um i think you asked me about the australian context and you know i think that's probably not too different to and um, the context that listeners in other parts of the world uh, may be familiar with for their home countries you know emissions uh, mitigation and, and low emissions technologies are a priority and for australia CCS is um, is on the priority list, and so there's substantial government and company investment taking place in in CCS at the moment, um, and we're really proud to be part of that here at the University of Adelaide. So we have been engaging with a wide range of companies and government teams. We've been talking about priorities for our research to make sure that we have the biggest possible impact um, for for the efforts that we undertake. Um, we've got a range of new short courses and training workshops that we're launching, um, which you know, include topics like CO2 storage and engineering, uh, with the hope that that will be useful for upskilling the workforce who um, perhaps didn't have that included in the training that they've undertaken so far. Um, and I'll finish by talking about an exciting project we announced last year, which is a new partnership between the University of Adelaide and Chevron. Um, and Chevron are providing funds that are supporting two uh, CCS focused academic positions in the school over the next few years and providing more than a million dollars of funding that will see an upgrade to our coal flood laboratory facility. Um, so I won't go into the details. I know Mark has, has spoken a bit about some of, of, of that detailed research that we undertake. But this, this facility is going to enable us to um, basically inject CO2 through rock samples at the same sorts of temperatures and pressures that um, exist down below the surface in the locations that CO2 storage um, is taking place to really enable us to analyze what happens, you know, take x-ray images, take off samples, you know, 
chop up the rock afterwards and look at it under a microscope so that we can understand at a higher resolution um, than previously um, what those gas water rock interactions look like. Mm -hmm. So there's some really exciting things happening and I'm sure that that is, is going to keep continuing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Catherine, for that. Um, and thank you all for being here. I really appreciate the time uh, that you took to record this session with me. So thank you and uh, take care. Thank you, Michelle, and uh, we'll catch up some other time. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> thanks, Michelle. Yep, thanks. Bye, Catherine. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. This podcast is sponsored by the Midwest Regional Carbon Initiative, which is a structured five-year program funded by the U.S. Department of Energy. It is co-led by Battelle and the Illinois State Geological Survey. The initiative works to connect science, technology, and research to advance CCUS acceptance and deployment in 20 states across the Midwest, Mid-Atlantic, and New England regions of the United States.